Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. Big 7-0 this week, uh, almost the same age as you, Ian. 7-0? 70. <laughs> oh, 70. Yeah, yeah. But that Lucky was so you. difficult. <laughs> I forgot. I, I, I didn't realise, I didn't quite cotton on what you were talking about in terms of episode numbers, but um, yeah, uh, only two two years younger than me. <laughs> Um, I'll be honest, I've spent most of the day fixing my car because it's a bag of shit. I've got dirt all over my hands, so I can't really use anything. I've got a can of brew dog, which they're in news at the moment out there. And, uh, they are indeed. Bit, bit, I did see that they are, uh, well, is it? Are they just saving money as a business? I mean, can you see that to... they announced a film? No, but I thought compared to allegations that your CEO's a philandering, groping, CD, you know, whatever. The fact that we're just going to hire new staff at a cheaper rate because the business needs to save money. They're just shitting on them, aren't they, really? like You're not going to be going to uh, Cineworld to watch, uh, what's it called? Underdog, the story of Brewdog. No, could not get, I can't think of a film less I'd go to the cinema to watch than about a beer company that one... I don't really drink their beers, and two, I think, are a bunch of twats. But um, you'd have to be a gimp, wouldn't you, to go to the cinema to watch something like that and basically watch? Well, let's be honest, you'd you, go. Successful. You definitely, go. yeah, you'd love fucking Brewdog. You'd go. Yeah, but I won't spend money on watching a film. I'd spend money on the beers because Wingman and Punk IPA are, are absolutely top notch, but majority of others are pretty awful. Like Black Heart, I tried to get into that dinner for a long period of time, and it just tastes like off baby's milk. Not that I've tried baby's milk, obviously. Straight from the teat. Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, straight into the episode then. Um, MMA to start with, I've got an initial question for you because there's been a lot of talk of this in, it's always social media because that's the age that we're in, in 2024. John Jones and uh, our good friend Tom Aspinall, obviously in rim heavyweight champion. Some would argue the deserved actual champion. Is John Jones ducking Tom Aspinall? Because there's stuff that they've been saying to one another on Twitter. And in all fairness, Tom Aspinall has been very, very respectful about what he said back. He's admitted that John Jones is the greatest of all time. And in fact, going as far as saying, you are the greatest of all time, which is exactly why I want to beat you. Because who wouldn't want to beat the greatest of all time? John Jones says that he's not on his level. He says that he has his fights lined up with basically an old man who the last time we saw him limped into an arena and that would cement his legacy. He very much insinuated as well, as we have said all along, that he doesn't need anything else out of UFC once he has this next fight and insinuates that he's never going to fight Tom Aspinall. Is he ducking him, Ian? Is there any way around that? And is this a fight that has to happen or do we see him and his legacy peter out as we expect? I'm 50-50 because I think I still understand, despite the nonsense of the Jones Stipe side of it, I see entirely where Jones is coming from, for his legacy that he wants to be on paper. It's a paper point, really. But no one, in my personal view, as a a massive MA MA fan, is going to say that Stipe is the best heavyweight of all time. 
on paper and in the UFC he is because he's got the most defences and a few other things like that. So I can completely understand John Jones's point of view on that for the legacy. Um, I could understand that I think he is a fading force and because of his lack of activity that he might want to retire at that point and it may be in his mind. We know we've, we've talked on previous occasions where it's very dangerous if a fighter says, this is my retirement fight because is their mind on it. But equally, I feel like John Jones is the type of guy that he is a bad motherfucker. He is the greatest of all time. And he could be baited slash paid enough by the UFC to have one more and that be Aspinall. So I, I, I wouldn't rule it out entirely. I, I, I can understand how a lot of people would interpret it as potentially ducking. But I'm not sure John Jones really needs to duck anybody with his skill set. Tom Aspinall is a bad matchup for him. He's a he's a true heavyweight, you know, massive guy, moves quickly, look lot, lot younger, all the other things we've talked about. But I would be 50-50 because I, I think he's the type of guy as well, looking at the, the rivalry with DC, he can get people you can get under his skin. And if Aspinall does enough to get under his skin, it might be that he says, do you know what? All right, fuck it. I was going to retire, but I changed my plans to fight you, motherfucker, and beat you. So I, 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 I'm, I'm on the fence 50-50. What he actually said, I've just found the tweet. So this is uh, John Jones. What I refuse to do is to be one of these other fighters who stuck around too long. That just won't happen. Your boy Bones Jones over here, despite what a lot of people may like to think, uh, I've set myself up pretty well in life. I want Steve Bear for my resume. Outside of that, I need nothing else from the sport. I came, I saw, and I conquered, to which a fan put back saying, so you're retiring. Is that confirmed? He's put, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is coming back from two different surgeries and defeating Stipe is my primary goal and a huge feat, if you ask me. We both have already agreed to massive contracts. A win for either one of us would be absolutely massive for either of our careers. Despite how good Tom may seem right now, a win over him does nothing for my legacy. That's just the truth. That's all I'm saying. I understand a lot of you guys don't fully understand what's happening behind the scenes. You don't make it as far as myself and Stipe, not realising the business side of this. It's a strange. Can't disagree with him. Can't, yeah. But when you look at particularly, obviously he'll be remembered for his run at light heavyweight far more than the, the shortest in the heavyweight. But no one, when they look back on his career, let's say he did take on Aspinall, is going to claim that his greatest moment was beating Tom Aspinall. So no, it doesn't really or, do anything the other, for the him. The flip side of that is... Uh, a lot of people are backing Tom Aspinall to be the next big thing. And if Tom Aspinall, regardless of this fight against John Jones, goes on, uh, becomes the uh, correct champion, is no longer interim, all that nonsense, and goes on to dominate the division for a long period of time, if John Jones did have a fight with him before he goes on to do that and beats him in what a lot of people would say is his current prime and, and how he's ascended to the top is very, very impressive... If John Jones can say, yeah, I beat that guy, that guy who dominated the division for two, three years after I had ducked out, the only reason he was able to dominate it clearly is because I'm no longer there to beat him down, then I think it does do a lot for his, his uh, legacy and his yeah, career. Yeah, and I can see that argument. And I, I think Jones, as you say, I think a lot, 
a lot depends on his recovery. You know, it's a bad injury. So I think he's probably at the moment is rehabbing, seeing how he feels, seeing how that goes. If he runs through Stipe, you know, let's like he did Garne. Let's just use that as an example. And he absolutely crushes him and he does it very quickly. I could see him then saying, right, I'll fight again in three months, Aspinall, let's unify it, let's do this. You, you talk the talk, now I walk the walk, then he walks away. If it's a gruelling five-rounder, he takes some punishment, you know, God forbid, which I don't think he will, but he, he did lose, then probably not. But I, 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 I'm 50-50, and I do think we've seen this too many times before, People are, as, as much as I really, really rate, and particularly because he's English Aspinall, I feel like there's a lot of dick riding going on at the moment as well, that people are jumping on the hype train. You know, he has smashed a few people. But I think the other tweet that I saw from Jones himself was, I only recognise four people on your resume uh, in terms of saying, look, you've only beat really four decent people, whereas John Jones was fighting for the title at 23 and fought an absolute murderous row of champions. So I, I can see both sides of it as much as I want to see that fight. I can see Jones's point to some degree. And I also think that I'm not so... I do actually think that Jones' Stipe sells more than Jones' Aspinall because of... Aspinall so new to the game. Again, it would depend what card you put it on and what who else you, you, you put the undercard on. But I feel, again, if we put the business hat on, which is what Dana's doing, Stipe Jones is a bigger fight on paper and going to do bigger numbers than Jones Aspinall, if you ask me. Five years ago, maybe. But I think the, the vision or the image in my mind that has essentially been burned in is of Stipe walking into the arena um, on, I don't know if he had crutches, but he, he definitely limping. He looked like an old man. I remember us having a conversation about it a few months back, of course. And you just think, it, the greatest of all time, and I don't think anyone can argue with that in terms of John Jones's status in, in the UFC. I don't like the idea that that's the fight he's going to bow out on. I much prefer the idea of the passing of the torch. And if he does lose that final fight, yes, it's going to affect his legacy in a detrimental way but also he's taken on the best he can possibly take on that's been put in front of him you take on a steep here five years ago it's a completely different proposition if you take him on now but, on an injury all that it's you're just taking on a name aren't you you're not I taking agree. on a fight okay, I, I definitely agree with you but I think he he to some degree has earned that right if that makes sense because of how young he was and who he fought and the title reign he went on I feel like he's one of those people that has earned that right to call his opponents at, you know, pick and choose a little bit. There are certain people that, you know, Connor, Connor, just because of who he set, who he is and, and, and the star power he has, has that in him. And I feel that everything Jones has done for the sport and how good he's been, he should be able to make that call. But I, I think it depends on, and there's, there's a lot of factors and I, I don't fully agree with all these people that, again, jumping on the, ah, oh, you're too scared of him, you're this, you're that. I don't think John's scared is, John Jones is scared of anyone. Like, I wouldn't be if I was John Jones. So I, I, th- I think some of the points he makes is fair. I'm sure it's in the back of his mind that this guy is a young, 
hungry brute of a guy that I do not want to fucking, you know, could be the one that ruins my technic. All right, we know technically he's not undefeated because of the disqualification, but he is. And he's almost doing a bit of a Mayweather, isn't he? He's protecting that legacy a bit. He's picking the fights. He's trying to keep his own. Nobody, everybody knows that the Matt Hamill fight wasn't a loss. He absolutely battered him for four, for four rounds before he got disqualified for the only time I've ever seen anyone disqualified for 12, six elbows. So he's doing a bit of a Mayweather, but I feel like he's at, in the same way that Mayweather had by that point had earned that the right to do that. So I'm, I'm really on the fence with it and I'm, I'm, I really struggle, but I can see both sides of the argument completely. Yeah, I think Mayweather is quite a good comparison in that because Mayweather, despite what a lot of people say, and I know we rip the shit out of him quite often as well, was one of the best boxers, or best pound for pound of all time in, in terms of what his record was, what he did for the sport and the fights that he put on. But he was also very tactical. Everyone knows what happened with, with Pacquiao and when that fight took place. The argument was that Pacquiao had gone past his best and you know there's rumours of an exhibition fight between Mayweather and Pacquiao now and who really wants to see that. But you also look at the stick that's used to beat Mayweather's legacy apart, like I've just said there, is that he did tactically duck people until the right time. He did tactically ignore these certain fights. And I get the feeling... John Jones doesn't have this fight after the Stipe fight. That's the same. Whether that's incorrect, whether that's right, you know, is a completely different matter. But inevitably, you're opening yourself up to criticism in that instance. You're opening yourself up, but I think equally, time that would be forgotten quite quickly. Let's say if we if we're correct in what we both presume to be the case that he fights Stipe and retires. I don't think he'll be remembered. He'll he'll still be remembered as the greatest of all time. I'm yeah. not quite sure there'll be that little asterisk there that says he was the greatest of all time, but he ducked the most dangerous challenger when he left. So uh, you, you'll just get he, he was the greatest of all time, but Aspinall would have beaten him. And obviously, some people say no, no chance. Aspinall wouldn't have beaten. But that, him. Isn't that the same argument as Mayweather if he'd fought Pacquiao five years ago might have lost yeah. to it? Hundred percent. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it, you're talking ifs, buts, maybe's. You know, a total hypothetical. So, I don't see it long term. In the shorter term, it gets some flack. I, I totally agree. But when all is said and done, that will not be the thing that he's remembered for. He will be remembered as the greatest fighter of all time until someone else potentially comes along and beats that. And the, again, the way the sport is evolving and some of the these guys coming up and the potential that they've got. I mean, the one for me, if I had to talk about, to me, the most potentially talented person that has got a chance of of getting to that level is someone like Rachmanov. You know, under 18 fights, 18 finishes. John Jones didn't even have that. You know, that that is a ridiculous record. He's still not got many names on that resume. I would be the first to admit that. But time forgets a lot of these things and as you say there's always Mayweather does get that shit but equally the majority of the time people just still say he's the greatest of all time there's always someone that wants to shit on people you know this is again the world we live in everyone wants to find the negative in something so someone would always bring up that argument that he ducked Aspen all that you know he would have had a proper legitimate loss on his record 
you know, blah, blah, blah. But it, it, it's to be debated. But I, I definitely think if, the, if his, his recovery goes well, he smashes Stipe and he's in a good place physically, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he says, do you know what? Right, let's go. Okay, but you talk the talk. Now let's go. And as much as that is a dangerous matchup, I personally can't ever bet, bet against John Jones. 299 then, because there's been a lot of uh, fights announced coming up to this. Um, I can see on your notes that you've put here that it's one of the best stacked cards that you can remember in a long time and it's shaping up to be better than UFC 300. And I can't disagree at all because of the fact that UFC 300 seems to be forgotten about at the moment. It's very little. I don't know what they've done. I don't know why. Why Literally, most of the fights that they've got on 299 could easily be part of 300 because they're that good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's... For the sake of, what, three weeks, four, four weeks maybe between the two events, you could have definitely put on some of the ones like O'Malley and Vera onto 300, but... So the only thing is, I think O'Malley wanted to headline, and you personally, I don't think you could have him headline three hundred. He can definitely headline oh, okay. another event. So that that I think is why O'Malley is not on three hundred. Um, the latest rumor, I know we talked about a few rumors before. The latest rumor, which is ridiculous, and I don't know who it is to fight, is that they're talking about Brock again, uh, trying to get yes. Brock back onto uh, three hundred, which every, everyone loves to see that athletic freak in the cage um i mean i don't know who you'd put him against um they'd probably John put Jones. him against some no no don't do that like don't just that would just that's just ridiculous but um yeah so that that's the latest rumor but i mean if we've got if we look at so if we look at 299 headliner for the bantamweight title is o'malley is the champ against the number six rated vera we know that Vera is the only person to have beat O'Malley. So we talked about it before, won't go into it again. It's more of a fight rather than the deserving next uh, contender who clearly is Dashvili. Uh, it's an O'Malley fight to try and rectify that loss. Uh, a bit like Bisping was given his title when he fought Henderson. Number two, this is the one I'll be honest, I'm most excited about on the fight, is got violence written all over it and i'll be honest if we 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 talked the other day about bad motherfucker i know that's not on the equation because gagey has it justin poirier number three lightweight against benoit sandeni who i've hyped up quite a lot in the last two fights uh lightweight is the co-main event that is just someone's getting laid out there that is one that's is poirier still the man that we think he is and still just below the level of Islam and, and Oliveira, or is San Denis the rising star that's just going to come charging through and power his way to a... That could easily power him into a fight with Gagey. Now, that would be a bad motherfucker fight. You know, you could, depending on what happened, uh, for 300 or, uh, or set him up for a, a title eliminator, perhaps. You've got Gilbert Burns, number four ranked in the welterweight division versus Jack Della uh, Magdalena, who is a, one, a bit of a sleeper, doesn't particularly win fights in a super impressive ma- manner, but is um, chugging along nicely in his career and, and, and accumulating wins. One I know that you're particularly excited for, uh, Kevin Holland versus um, Michael Venom Page. 
So 100%. Ben, ben yeah, Page gets his um, UFC debut. Um, and given that Holland, uh, well-known when he lost to Stephen Thompson, even though he's a, an amazing grappler and a black belt at jiu-jitsu, basically had a gentleman's agreement with Thompson to say, right, let's stand and fight. If he was being really bold and ballsy, he would do the same against Michael Ben and Page. I get the feeling he might not be that stupid this time because Ben and Page, <laughs> if you get Ben and Page to the floor, you can sub him in a second. But yeah. that would be super ballsy of him to do that. And again, hats off to Kevin Holland if he was prepared to do that. Heavyweight bout that could have some uh, title implications further down the line, probably a couple of fights down the line, is who we've talked about, Curtis Blades, because obviously he is the only person to have technically beaten Aspinall because of the, the stoppage of the injury. Number five ranked in the heavyweight fight in uh, Almeida, who is very, very good, just not the most exciting Boring. fighters to watch exactly, and that's why he hasn't got as much hype, but... Ground game-wise, he's probably the best in the heavyweight division. He gives anyone problems on the floor and he's going he's, he's gonna to fuck you if you get down to the floor with his jiu-jitsu. Um, we've got in the women's flyweight division, we've got uh, Caitlin uh, Chukagan, I believe it is, against Macy Barber. Obviously, Macy Barber is a bit of a, a rising star and um, has done really well so far in her career and has looked very impressive. Um, a fight I cannot believe two fights I cannot even believe that this shows you how stacked the card is that this far down the card so these are probably on the prelims not even on the main card Gamrot who's super highly rated at six at lightweight versus uh, RDA in terms of Rafael de Sanjos and uh, at bantamweight former title champion Petri Yan against Song Yedong like they are two in any other card, that's probably like your co-main and number three fight, and they're all the way down the card. It's absolutely insanely stacked. I can only imagine that Dana is holding back some unbelievable fights, and we'll come on to what's been announced on UFC 300 thus far. But like you say, <laughs> that's that's prelims. Is that 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 can't be the the main card? So we're talking about putting. Petri Yan and Gamrot on the prelims, really. Maybe it's it's absolutely insane. As you say, that is a definite one to stay up and watch because that's the whole card you could easily sit and watch. But I mean, I don't, you know, even the one, the next fight, even below that, Pedro Munoz at bantamweight, number 11 against Kyla Phillips. Uh, don't know much about Phillips. I know he's won a couple of fights, he's unranked, but Munez is another machine that, you know, you catch him on a good day and he can beat anyone in that division. Um, very inconsistent, but can take a punch, can throw a punch, good jiu-jitsu. So, yeah, that is a card that um, excites me the most I've, for, for, for any card for a long time uh, in terms of actual pure numbers of fights. It's, it's incredible. Let's move on to 300 then, because I think we've got, Five fights announced thus far, I believe. Uh, and Dana's just recently advised, uh, announced the first ever Chinese versus Chinese fighter. Um, yep, so the two women, uh, isn't it for, I forget, sorry, which belt that is for, but uh, it is Wei Li Zhang versus, 
um, another Chinese fighter. I'm afraid I can't remember a name, but that is for the title. Um, headlining so far, I get the feeling, is this really a headliner? I feel like he's got to be holding something back, but it's a fucking good fight, is at lightweight Charles Oliveira versus Arman Taksurian. The really interesting thing about the, this announcement is Dana has said the winner of that gets Islam. So the question I've got then for you, what's going on with Gagey? Is Gagey being held back? Is there going to be a surprise announcement for Gagey? Islam maybe on that card? Does that suddenly become it? Because Gagey is clearly the next in line yeah. for Islam. Like it's... just to skip him over is outrageous. But these were the rumours, weren't there, that he would be overlooked. And we discussed this a few weeks back that the talk was Gagey isn't in title contention yet, which I know we both disagree with. And the business side of me suggests that they try to keep apart the BMF and um, the lightweight title, which also suggests to me that Gagey's got to be on this card and Islam's got to be on this card. Are they going to fight each other? Well, I think he's the most deserving contender next, personally. Um, agreed, like agreed. You, but... You've said many times, and I don't disagree with you, you you've kind of, it feels improper to have a centennial event without the pound for pound number one on it at least so you've got to think that islam will be there but if they've announced that's the next fight then what's going on so maybe that that would be my if 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 i had a strong suspicion it would be that that's the case the only other thing i know we talked about so i don't want to go back again does is is it a case of Islam is going to be given a chance to go up to fight Edwards for champ champ status, depending on um, Edwards has announced that he will be likely fighting on 300 and there's been no announcement about him yet. So that would be the only other obvious one that then would explain the absence of, of, of Gagey is, is Islam going to go up to 170, uh, uh, sorry, 185, and fight um, Edwards. I get so, yeah. the feeling, I, I'll be honest, I get the feeling, and I'm going to make a, a wild, outlandish prediction for you now about UFC 300. I'm going to tell you three of the fights because I'm clearly that knowledgeable. So where have you read this? Where have you read this? This is is what I'm I'm thinking, because I've looked at what's available. I I don't know if Islam's going to be on the card, and I don't know if Gage is going to be on the card, and I want them both on it. So we'll leave that to one side for now. I think your headliner, I'm almost certain at this point, is Izzy Pereira 3. I think you get the trilogy fight. Um, Because of those posts that, that Izzy had put up and the size of him, He's going up in weight, and the only logical explanation that, from a business point of view, from a fighter's point of view, from everything involved, is he takes on Poetan for the title. I think you also get Edwards, but I think he fights Bilal, because there were the rumours anyway, and I think that's what you get. I think McGregor's on this card. I know that he said it's the 29th of June, and I know that um, it seems that Chandler is in agreement on that. I think it's nonsense and I think they'll put it on 300. 
I, Edwards Palau, I agree with. I think I would not be surprised. And I think the way you can't have 299 outshining 300. So I, I wouldn't disagree with, as well. And I've had the same suspicion, should we call it, that the McGregor stuff is smoke and mirrors and that Dana, a little bit closer, is going to come out and just be like, boom, here it is. This is what you've all wanted. Everyone's been saying it's underwhelming. McGregor charmed that will headline it. So I, I I could certainly see two of the, the three being right. I just, I'd love to hope, because if you suddenly then add in the Izzy Poetan, now we're talking, then with the rest of the, card, the other fights that have been announced that we'll come on to in a sec, then that is a centennial card. But I just, I don't know. I just get the feeling that Izzy does have some legitimacy in what he said about taking some time off. He was very active. You can't fault him for that. When you've had the sort of the, the losses that he's had, the medical advice is always to take a fair bit of time off to allow your brain to recover from concussions and, and things like that. I just wonder if it's come a bit too soon. If it was a bit later in the year, you know, August, September, maybe, I could definitely see that and see him in completely changing his mind. But I, that's the one I'd, that's the, I'll be honest, I'd love that fight more than McGregor Chandler on, on the card as the main. I think that is, that is spectacular for the light heavyweight belt, but I just don't see it personally. Helwani said a week or so ago, didn't he, um, that Dana White has something, what did he quote it as? A rabbit to pull out of the hat for uh, UFC 300, as if he was keeping something back that um, is going to shock people, is going to make people yeah, stand But Helwani's the type of guy that he doesn't say shit like that without being able to carry on running his mouth. So I feel like he might. that's his view, a bit like we're saying, if he knew something, you know, even if it was strongly rumoured, and of course someone, you know, he is one of the preeminent MMA journalists, let's be fair, so he knows a lot more shit than we do. I feel like he's the type that wouldn't be able to stop himself saying, this is the rabbit out of the hat. So I feel like I don't disagree with his view, but I think it's very strong conjecture on his part at this moment because if he knew something that we didn't, he's not shy on on giving that away. So I feel like if he knew one of those, the Izzy thing, that the McGregor, I can't help but feel he would have said, there's a rabbit out of the hat. This is what it is. So until it's announced, we're all going to have to just sit and wait, you know, ultimately uh, guessing and continuing to talk about it. And and maybe that's what Dana's do, doing, building the hype, waiting, you know, waiting for the right time to announce it. And, um, you know, it might well be that it's the type of thing that they come out at 299. It's that late on, if you know what I mean. They wait, 299's there. They wait to sort of in between the main and the co-main. Boom. They suddenly bring McGregor and Chandler out and announce it there and then just to blow it up a little bit more. They're both, from what I can see and from what's been reported, Chandler and... McGregor, so McGregor's gone back to Ireland now, and Chandler started camp about a week ago. Uh, do we really think they're going to be in a six-month camp until June? 
Because that seems a lengthy camp. I mean, it is a lengthy camp, but obviously you've got to remember McGregor's coming back from the horrendous injuries he's had and has a fair amount of weight to shed as well. But yeah, again, everything that we're talking about kind of lines up that that would be, that's the most obvious rabbit out of the hat and the one that will undoubtedly blow 300 through the roof in terms of pay-per-view sales. So, And I'm just going to throw another one in there. I've just thought of it cut you off so it's got to be a very very interesting fight and a gaugey holloway bmf now there's some sense in that that would explain why there's been very little talk about gaugey and they're keeping him back holloway you know very impressive fighter has a very good resume done what he's done you know for a while going up a weight against Gagey, I think, would be a bad move for him. But you could, you, yeah, you could put him in the bad motherfucker equation. I think it would be hard not to, given the, you know, the title run that he had at um, Featherweight and what he did. Um, And it would, as you say, mainly more than anything, and explain the lack of discussion around Gagey, because I still can't help but feel that man guarantees you violence in great fights and that's he's exactly the type of person that you want on that card whether it's for the BMF or not but um, that's not a bad shout um, the two other fights that have been announced we've got our light heavyweight we've got number two uh, Brahaska is fighting uh, Rakic number five so um, I'm not quite sure if I'm, in, I'm honest how Rakic has ever got that high Standard word everybody knows I use by now. Gatekeeper for me wins against the majority of people, but he's never beaten the, the elite. I would say that should be a relatively easy win for for Prohaska. And then we've also got at featherweight uh, Calvin Kata, who is incredibly underrated, and I don't know how he's rated at seven, fighting Aljamain Sterling, which is his featherweight debut. So he's coming up from bantamweight. Now, he used to have a pretty bad cut, uh, a serious cut, and obviously he's coming off the loss to O'Malley. So he's he's going up in weight uh, to try his luck at featherweight. Um, so they're both, de- again, decent fights, but not quite the fights that we talked about as some of the ones above that get you really buzzing for the card like 299. Yeah, nowhere near. They're not, don't get me wrong, love watching Yeezy or love watching um, Sterling. They're good fights, but they're absolutely not in that level. Moving on, I mean, one thing I don't know if you saw, this was one where it gets a bit, it's a, it's, it's obviously MMA related, but it's a bit um, off topic and I, I suppose a bit niche. But um, there's been a few court cases recently by the UFC. The main one um, was Mark Hunt trying to sue them. I'm not sure if I'm entirely honest if it's part of that court case or not, but there were some unsealed documents released this week in a court case against the UFC, uh, and it regards CM Punk, that wonderful transition that they tried to mirror with the, the Brock jumping on the back of his wrestling um, uh, following uh, and and see how good he would do. 
considering we t- we've talked before about how people get pretty shitty money in the UFC for what they do, particularly when they come in on their first fights, it was revealed that uh, CM Punk re- received a flat fee of half a million dollars for his debut, which is one of the highest debut amounts I've ever heard of. Um, but with the pay-per-view, which they gave him, which is crazy considering he's not even a champ, which they usually reserve that for, his debut, he took home $1,042,736 to get absolutely destroyed. So fair play to him for his payday and his manager, but that shows you how desperate the UFC were at the time in trying to replicate the success that they had with Brock and has to go down as one of the biggest fails ever. Yeah, one of the worst UFC stints I think you'll ever see. I remember at the time UFC had obviously tried to capitalise on the popularity of CM Punk. I think he had just had a really exciting running WWE at the time. It was all to do with John Cena and was about to leave the company for undisclosed reasons and we won't get into that. And then obviously loads of fans were disgruntled by the fact that he were leaving because he was such a big star and then he transitions into the um, world of MMA and gets absolutely flattened, which makes the WWE look bad because obviously that looks a little bit fake now. And we all know WWE is real and uh, all these fights that they involve themselves are definitely real. Um, he's back in WWE now, I think, actually, you at CM Punk. Don't care. Don't watch that I, fake shit, you know. I, say I, say I think I, I clearly keep my eye on it constantly because it's... I was going to say, I bet yeah. when you say you think you're 100% oh, I, I know, yeah. I mean, going to fight Steph Rollins. Who, that sounds like <laughs> a woman, and she'd probably beat him because that's how shit he was. If, he's, if, he, if he was wrestling-wise, anything to go by his uh, MMA skills, he was... A little bit, as I say, um, I'm old school. I did watch wrestling back in the day, but that was back in the good old days where they at least pretended it was real when we all knew it wasn't, but they would pretend it was before they started calling it sports entertainment. And we had That's light, Ult- is that? Ultimate Warrior. Uh, I love the Legion of Doom, were my favourite as a tag team. Uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, uh, the Natural Disasters, you know, real classics of the wrestling circuit uh back in the days that i watched it but i have zero absolutely zero interest in watching that nonsense now well all you need to know is that cm punk is a very very rich man and he's uh he's back in the we because he earns stuff like a few uh thousand hundred thousand million but is he dollars. i just mean just if he, if he did a million he probably did relatively similar probably for his second fight that he also got smashed in um does he need to come back for the money? I mean, does he live some lavish lifestyle? And... It's for the fans, Ian, isn't it? It's, uh, he's a, as a man of the people. Anytime I hear the colour personality by, um, oh, God, who sings it now, Living Colour, uh, always think of CM Punk. Without Why is that, is that a walkout song or something? You've, never, you've heard of it, though, haven't you? Surely. No. What? I've got to play like yeah. a few seconds of it because otherwise we'll get copyrighted. But uh, whenever you hear this... It's like immediately, oh, it's CM Punk. It's 
classic. Wouldn't have a, wouldn't have a clue of that song or the the correlation to oh, CM Punk in the slightest. I don't, I don't, don't even think, if I'm honest, I've ever even seen a CM Punk wrestling match because he's pretty small, isn't he? Like as yeah, wrestlers but, go, like he's not a big guy at all. Which is to... why with wrestling, whenever Brock Lesnar involved, it were always unbelievable that you had like people, you know, like Rey Mysterio <laughs> taking on Brock Lesnar because there's only one way. But he's about the only guy, Rey Mysterio, that I'm relatively aware of that was smallish in terms of that size of, of CM Punk in, as opposed to these fucking, like The Undertaker uh, and people like that about how, you know, the, the physical specimens, pure size and muscle-wise they were. CM Punk wasn't a big guy, really, was he? Like, um, Pretty standard, yeah. Undertaker, like, six foot odd. Do you know that Brock Lesnar ended the Undertaker's WrestleMania streak? Broke my heart that day, that. Absolutely broke my heart. I no, no, I didn't know that. And I could... I, it's one of those things that you tell me will go in one ear and out the other. I won't remember that. I've got enough information in my brain about certain things I need to. I don't give a shit about the WWE. Got to start with some really, really sad news. Actually, two bits of sad news when it comes to football uh, in the past week. Franz Beckenbauer has died, um, age 78. Really sad. I mean, as, as much as he was uh, German and at the, the peak of what, you know, sort of relatively... It was very German, after, yeah. Relatively <laughs> after the war when England really hated Germany. Um, De Kaiser was the man, I mean pretty much credited with inventing the role of the, the modern sweeper, I think it would be fair to say, um, you know, playing that role and bringing the ball out from from uh, the back. I did, did a little bit of uh, looking at stats-wise and, I mean, some incredible stats, really. 754 games, club games, 98 goals. So for a sweeper, it's pretty impressive in terms of you're ultimately a centre-back moving forward into midfield. Uh, international level, he had played 103 games for West Germany with 14 goals. Um, and he's one of only nine players to win the World Cup, European Champions Cup and the Ballon d'Or. Got a question for you then. Can you name me another one of the eight? Uh I haven't got the answer, by the way. I just thought I'd put you on the spot and make you feel really awkward. So I, I don't know, but uh, messed it. I read that. Uh, yes, no, will he? yes, yes, he would be. Yes, Messi would be one of them. So yeah, you're right. And yeah, probably Ronaldo would. If Ronaldo, no, Ronaldo, Ronaldo has never won the World oh, Cup, has he? World would, Cup, yeah, Portugal haven't won that. Um, someone, what about someone French, maybe? Zidane? I be someone French. Zidane, yeah. Zidane probably would have done it. I would have thought the World Cup, European Champions uh, Cup and the Ballon d'Or, maybe. But, um, Has he won the Ballon d'Or? Zidane must have. I don't know. I can't believe that he didn't at a point, at some point in his career. That's a, I mean, that's. A, that that's a bigger miscarriage of justice than all this post office that I'm reading. Yeah, he I did indeed. You're he right. Yeah, to say he must have at one point. Um, but yeah, very very sad news. The other one that is equally sad, which I didn't know about, you did tell me about this, so you can elaborate a bit more than me. But Sven Goran Eriksson has been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he has. Yeah, it's um, it sort of comes out of nowhere. I, I was looking through. Um, 
X, formerly Twitter, this morning, as you tend to do. And then there's just a random quote from him that just essentially said, uh, you try to convince your body that the news isn't true and you try to keep going and stay positive, but you have to face these things head on. And I was thinking, it's a weird quote to put next to Swenger and Eriksson. Is it something to do with footballers or something like that? Or is it something to do with the World Cup? And then you look further into it. And yeah, he was on, um, I think we are a Swedish radio station and, and basically announced that he's got a year to live. So he's got terminal cancer, he's got a year to live. And um, yeah, really sad news. The first non-English English manager, I believe. He was, and I mean, at his peak, a sensational manager. When, in, when England appointed him, I mean, he was the absolute man in Serie A, you know, managed Lazio. I think he took Lazio to their first title in, in, in years, managed that uh, a Lazio team I can remember watching on Gazette Football Italia that had that Veron, uh, his, his absolute peak Veron, where he had his socks down low, his shin pads hanging out, and was dribbling on round everybody. They had, um, uh, who else did they have? Did, was it Ivan Zamorano up front? They had some some right players in that team. I think he also managed Inter, did he not, uh, in in uh, his career there, but had a, an incredible career. Uh, it, to be fair, it all kind of went slightly downhill after England for him, didn't it, really? All of his yeah. success was really post-England or pre-England, sorry. I don't think he ever did Inter. I know he did Benfica, he did quite a few Italian clubs in here, Roma, Fiorentina, Sampdoria and Lazio. Um, and then obviously went to uh, England after Lazio, after Kevin Keegan, which is a, a real throwback. But yeah, it, I mean, had some good times while he was uh, manager, nothing really to uh, write home about. And that was the golden generation that should have really won something. Um Obviously, exited the World Cup in in twenty uh, two thousand and two and two thousand and six without really much to uh, hit home again. I think it were both at the quarterfinals, as far as I'm aware. When when, when Rooney got sent off for the um, Cristiano Ronaldo incident, where Ronaldo winked, and Ronaldo winked, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah no, really but very sad news. news, and um, you know our our best wishes to both of their families in 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 that tough time. Uh, moving on to some more cer- certainly positive news from my point of view. Um, I suppose uh, we'll talk about the FA Cup. I mean, I'm going to not I'm not going to lie. I haven't got a load of detail here. In fact, the only game I've got detail on is Liverpool's fantastic victory. Um, I don't know if you watched the match. I did, and it was one of the worst matches I've ever watched. It was basically Arsenal on top for 89 minutes and Liverpool taking the chances. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. I was joking to all my Arsenal mates. It was like watching Arsenal if they had Nunes up front. <laughs> That's what it, like they had. So They could have been like 4-0 up in the first 20 minutes. Obviously, the main chance, Odegaard hits the bar. Now, admittedly, Trent and our only chance really in the first half hit the bar as well and probably should have scored. But it just had that feel. And Grant, obviously, who's done the um, the, the matches, the uh, the double taps with us, texted me and said, the longer this goes, I can see you nicking a late one. And I was like, mm, I'm not so sure. Um, and then that's exactly what happened. 
And um... it, it looked that way that he's spot on because that's what Arsenal have done this season. That they tend to dominate the games that they dominate, they tend to not get much out of. The games that they are in a battle for, they tend to grind out. And the results that or the streak of results that Mikel Arteta has overseen at the moment are far from ideal in terms of everything. Obviously, they're out of the cup now. They're not going to win the Carabao Cup because they're well out of that. The Premier League seems to be faltering at the moment. Like, What stage do you start questioning Mikel Arteta? Because I'm sure you, you're going to get radical Arsenal fans who are thinking, hang on a minute, we don't have a striker here. We, we seem to be lacking in his clinical nature. And teams that we should be beating when we're all over them, we can't get the job done. No, 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 I agree. And one of the points that Grant made was that, you know, most Arsenal fans, unless they're of that very naive and, you know, oh, let's just look at the five last five results, are of the view that we're in the position that we're in in the turnaround because of Arteta and what he did. So he, in the same way that last season, you know, the jury was out on Klopp a little bit with Liverpool because of the, the slide off, I think Arteta is pretty safe and most Arsenal fans wouldn't swap him or do anything about that. But I think they definitely need to be looking very, very seriously at getting a proper striker in the January transfer window. And if they don't, then they could just slide um, off, off. I wouldn't say out of the top four, but that that, that title challenge is, 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 is definitely over. Yeah, they, they need to turn it around very, very quickly. Um, but, I mean, for, for Liverpool, it was important that they keep this role that they've got going. And I always like to doubt you every single week. I like to criticise every single week. But with the players that are set to leave to go to uh, the African Cup of Nations, and obviously you're set to lose Endo as well to the Asia Cup, and then there's the news that Trent is now injured for a, a number of weeks it's one of those games where you start to think, hang on a minute, we're winning these games, we're grinding out results, and we're far from as best team at the moment. It's not like we've got one or two injuries or one or two big players out. We've got quite a number of young players playing. Connor Bradley was quite impressive. Um, Bradley was amazing. I mean, we'll come on to the FL Cup. Bradley was amazing uh, yesterday against Fulham. Absolutely superb. Yeah. And, um, you know, looks like at the moment, as you said, as gutting as it is to lose Trent, but looks the, the perfect solution uh, at the moment to come in at right back and um, to cover while, while Trent's out. But um, yeah, nicking it when we didn't play very well and we were far, far from being the best team can only be seen as a, as a good result for us. So, Especially um, considering, was... and, and with Conor Bradley, especially considering how good Trent has been. And obviously in, in the Arsenal game as well. So, I mean, in terms of the other results, we won't spend too much time on it. It's FA Cup third round. It's one of those where there isn't really that much to talk about. I do want to highlight Maidstone because they are the uh, lowest ranking team to remain in the Cup. They ousted Stevenage, who were doing very well this season in League One, I believe. Uh, beat them 1-0 and were rewarded with a tie against uh, Championship High Flop players Ipswich and yes I did say that through gritted teeth um so Wrexham won Wrexham won um beat was it Shrewsbury who are a league above them um that was um again I think obviously Wrexham are near the top of the league Shrewsbury in the bottom of their league so there's not very many places between them on the the ladder as they refer to it but that was uh certainly a good result for 
Wrexham, I'm not sure who they drew in the next round, whether they got a juicy tie or not, uh, you know, for a bit of TV rights and whether they'd be on TV. But that was certainly a impressive result for them. Yeah, I, I really wanted to draw um, Wrexham, to be honest, because I feel like they'd be a good team to uh, go up against. They, they actually took on, or they will take on Blackburn um, away, uh, which is quite funny because there's a, a little bit without boring you about it. But if you watch Welcome to Wrexham, there's a bit where they have a map of all the different teams in the Football League and they have Blackburn absolutely nowhere near where Blackburn actually are. And I think Blackburn's Twitter response or X's response was, uh, we'll give you directions to come to us if you need them. Uh, got to mention Leeds just for the sole purpose of Patrick Bamford scoring the goal of the year. Um, unbelievable to watch that. I, I watched it and I'm like, yeah, I'm not, not sure that that isn't faked. I'm not sure that that isn't someone else wearing a Patrick Bamford suit because he didn't have that. Well, that was my exact text for you. you <laughs> I, I, I'd heard, I mean, literally, I'd never seen, I had a quick look on, on Twitter, I'd never seen so many posts of the same thing, which was his goal. Uh, and it was absolutely incredible, there's no doubt. But um, I, my, I think my response to you was that's Nonto wearing a Bamford <laughs> um, mask because the man can't hit a goal from a yard out and then he does that. Like, what? Unbelievable. Uh, Question for you on that then. Who wins the goal of the season at the moment? Obviously, we, we can't predict the future, but is it that or is it the Ganacho over Red Definitely Ganacho. I know you're going to try and... You, you, you yourself, only weeks ago, were like, no one's touching Ganacho for his goal. Until and I saw this I goal. I don't think that comes... It's a close second... But it's not it's not better than Garnacho's, if you ask me. So I was saying that it's easier to take a forty-yard pass on your chest, continue in your stride, and lob the keeper from was it twenty-five yards with a volley, all in one action, than it is to hit overhead kick. The overhead kick is outstanding, don't get me wrong, but that is one you've got to look at the competition. So you've got a yeah. shit goalie. It was against that. No, you can't. No, that's, I'm not having that. Tried it, didn't he? If no Bam- one is saving Bam- that. If Bamford, I mean, it's the both both of them. If they tried that a hundred times, they'd be lucky if they did it once. Correct. Yeah. So it's there's an element, a complete element of luck in there, and I'm not having it that if anyone says. Yeah, you know, he could do that all the time. Well, he misses from a fucking yard out. So, no, he can't do that all the time. Like, no one's said nonsense. that, but his goal is better than Garnacho's. End of end of that sentence, clearly. And he'll win the Puskas no. Award as well, I bet you. No, not at all. No one's going no a better goal. We'll see, we'll see. Um, move on to the EFL Cup then, because, again, it's all about Liverpool. Just can't get away from you this week. Um We'll start with Borough, though, because obviously they pulled the result of the, the round. Uh, we're in the semis now. And, you know, I even forgot it with the two legs. <laughs> I sat there thinking, fucking well done, Middlesbrough. That is going to be a right final for whoever plays them. And then realised that no one really celebrating that much. And I'm sat there thinking, what? And then realised there's a second leg at Sanford Bridge. Well, to some degree, it's a bit like the Liverpool one. That um, I mean, great result for Borough and we probably shouldn't count it as a shock given how shit Chelsea have been recently in some of their results. But you, equally, if you're a Chelsea fan and the team they've got, I know they've got a few injuries and they've got a few people that at the at the, at the AFCON and the, the Asian Cup, etc. But if, you, if, if you're a Chelsea, if you're Pochettino and you're saying, 
we've got to beat a championship team 2-0 at home to get to a final. You You've got it. to think that's going to happen, haven't you? And Cole Palmer, I watched this as well, and Middlesbrough were good money for the win, don't get me wrong, in how they played. They, they clearly weren't the better team, but you wouldn't begrudge them for that. Um, when it came to the fact that Cole Palmer missed three very obvious chances, it it's one of those where I think any other day of the week, he puts them away. And it just so happened that in this instance, he he didn't. Uh, and obviously, Middlesbrough take account of that. They are very fortunate in that. If that happens at the bridge, you, you ugh, I've just sickened myself by calling it the bridge. If that happens at Stamford Bridge, um, then you imagine that he's going to score those chances because he's been in very good form. So it's a bit of two ways, and I'm a bit disappointed that there's two legs in it, to be honest. I'd like to see Middlesbrough get to a final. Yeah, and in the same way that, you know, Fulham, you've got to feel slightly aggrieved for them having, in the space of like two or three weeks, been ahead and lost twice to Liverpool after <laughs> being ahead. Um, but again, we have, you know, that's our MO this season is go go behind and then and then pull it back. Um, I mean, you text me, sell Van Dyke. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> one, one mistake, like from the greatest centre-back uh, in the world, arguably, you can't sell, oh. sell him for that. Um, but it was not a good uh, sharing from Virgil for that, admittedly. Um, the subs changed the game for us. Um, lucky deflection. So no, let's not be any, uh, you know, pretend any different for, for Curtis Jones' goal, but that was his fourth goal in four games. Um, but Nunes and Gakpo absolutely completely changed the game. And as I, I thought said, Nunes, Nunes more than anything. Ha- I mean, Nunes in the Arsenal match, once they put him out to the left flank, he caused a whole load of problems. He didn't score, and but in terms of causing problems, but Gakpo obviously got the winner and also took a, a little record with him as well that becomes the first Liverpool player since Ian Rush to score in four consecutive rounds of a cup. So... Nice little confidence booster for both of them, given that we're going to rely on them more with Mo away at the moment. It's turning very much into uh, the streak that Minamino went on for the for Liverpool in the AFL Cup, uh, where he was seemingly an absolute monster. Didn't do much in any other competition, but when it came down to the Carabao Cup, he were outstanding. Um, question for you, just before we, we move on from football and... Obviously, we tend to try not to talk too much about one team in, and certainly not our own team when we do these podcasts, but Liverpool have have featured quite heavily this week. So I think we'll be excused for that. When it comes to the fact that you keep coming from behind, and this is a regular occurrence, as you say, it's not a matter of it's happened one or two times this season. There must be a stat on there, and I would assume it's about seven or eight times where you've gone behind. I think behind. it's even more. I think it might be nine that, or ten. Like, yeah, it's a ridiculous I, number if you look, look at cups you, as well. Are you worried by it? Because it, on one side, it's a positive because it's, it's the mentality monsters side of things, isn't it? You've gone behind. Klopp makes these fantastic changes that change the game, and you come away as, as victors. But on the flip side, you're going behind against a number of varied teams it's not like it's you know it's your man cities um your your spurs your arsenals that you're constantly going behind and then bringing that back which you can absolutely excuse there are teams that are going ahead 
that really shouldn't be going ahead against Liverpool and certainly not at Anfield. So is there any worry that that's going to cause a massive impact on your season? Yeah, definitely, because it's not as much as we've done it and as well as we've done it, it can't continue. And there's going to come a time where someone goes a go up like that and then parks the bus. And, you know, the way that we have been this season with not everybody firing on all cylinders such as they have, we're not going to come back. So, as you say, that it's it's very good and shows an incredible depth of character from the players that were able to do it. But I'd be absolutely lying if I said that I was happy about it. And you want... It, sometimes it feels like it's... This is almost like a sign of the new Liverpool. The old Liverpool under like Klopp, call it version one, was we would come out of the blocks like a steam train first 15, 20 minutes, we would roll over teams, we'd be all over and we'd go one, two, nil up and we'd have something to cling on to. It feels like with the changes we've made and losing some players and sort of if we call this Liverpool point, uh, 2.0 um, under Klopp, this seems to be how they do it, is that they, they almost need to go a goal behind to get the motivation to fire them up for Klopp to then go in and give him a rollicking at half-time and make some subs in order for it to change around. So it it's great that we're doing it, but there's going to come a point where we don't do it. And it would really concern me once you're playing against, like you say, the bigger teams, you know, like when we've got City coming up, when we've got, um, you know, it's Aston Villa and the other teams like that. You're, you're, you're putting yourself at a significant disadvantage by doing that. So um, I wouldn't want that to happen. But I did see a stat that came up, I think, in the Liverpool-Arsenal match. The last 20 games, sorry, 22 games that Liverpool have gone, scored the first goal, they've won 20 and drawn two. So on the flip side of that, if we score first, it's pretty much in the bag. We, we, we can hang on to that. But that's not being the case at the moment. So, yeah, it is a concern, but I'm not unhappy at the way it turns around. But as you say, that it, it, it concerns me. And I'm sure it's something that even Jürgen wouldn't be happy with, is the fact that we're always having to come up from a goal behind because you're just making things difficult for yourself from the start, aren't you? We've got two heavy hitters returning to the uh, the ring after quite a prolonged period of time for both of them, to be honest. Uh, lightweight gold on the line. Arta B- Aberta Biev is defending the IBF, WBC and WBO titles against England's Callum Smith uh, this weekend. It's on uh, January the 13th. It's taking place in Quebec City, funnily enough. Um, don't see a lot in uh, in Canada these days, but... Uh, Bert Biev obviously has held the gold since, or has held some form of gold since uh, 2017 at £175. I think that's, that weirdly, isn't that his adopted country? It that's is, why. yeah. I it think is. he's, you know, yeah. adopted, uh, you know, or a, a citizen of, of Canada, which is why I think it's being fought there. I Just, you don't, you don't see it very often, do you? It's like um, when you see fights in Poland, for example, it's it's very much, as you say, it's because of the nationality aspect. Of well, it, so but... The only other per- time you ever got ever big fights in Canada was GSP, the UFC, yeah. just because of yeah. what a massive uh, personality he was uh, in, in Canada. Um, but... Yeah, it's another one of those that um, is a 
an interim in that it's kind of been announced, hasn't it? I'm not sure how official this is, but as long as Bertabia beats Smith, we get Bertabia Bival, which is an absolutely outstanding fight and one of the top fights that you could possibly want to see. And that would be for the unification for the all four titles. So you just, in the same way that there was the AJ Wilder fight, and as long as they both won, that was going to happen. Does Callum Smith ruin that? I can't see it happening myself against the man in boxing who is the Rachmanoff equivalent of, is it 18 or 19 fights and all finishes? So 19, I, yeah. So, I mean, it, you're absolutely spot on. The comparison is the, the Wilder AJ. It's Bert Biev and Bivol is about as set in stone as AJ and Wilder was. Now, obviously, as we've all seen, complications can lead to those fights falling apart and shocks can happen in boxing. Um, you're right, he has got a 100% knockout to win ratio. He's, he's basically run through all of his competition as Bert Biev. He's 38 years of age. We'll come on to that in just a second. But obviously, he's going to this fight as the heavy favourite. His power and aggression are chilling. You know, he's got a career-long, light, heavyweight um, set of fights behind him. He's, he's never really done anything else. He has won more fights at the elite level than Smith. He won, obviously, his first world title at the expense of Colin in um, November 2017, as I said. But the problem is, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that he won't win this fight, but in the same way that I had this conversation with you about Wilder and Parker, I think a lot of people immediately writing off Callan Smith would be silly, at the very least, to say uh, to do so because of the fact that as, as much as Bertabiev is a monster, He's far from infallible. Uh, he was flawed by, funnily enough, Smith's former stalema- uh, stablemate, uh, Callum Johnson, in 2018. We watched Anthony Yard against him, who put up a very, very impressive performance, and the power punches were having an effect in their constant uh, encounter. They were obviously very much voluminous in their, their punches there. And as I said, he's 38 years of age. He's been boxing for over 20 years. He, as scary as the man is doesn't have that many years left in the tank, or I would argue doesn't have that many years in the tank. And Smith is a very big hitter himself. He's a very good counter-puncher. And if Bertabiev becomes too aggressive, he gets himself too involved with this, then he could get nailed by something as he's trying to just end this fight. And Smith's left hook is a very, very good punch. If it lands flush... He's going to know about it, it's Bert Um the, the the length of time that they've been out of action, both of them, is a concern. And certainly because Smith's been out of action for 16 months now, Bert Biev for a year. But this isn't as cut and dry as people are saying. Bert Biev is, as I say, a heavy favourite and will very likely win it. But there is a, a an opportunity here for Callum Smith to set up a fight against Bivol. And with that in the back of his mind... You've seen more surprising things happen in boxing before. I kind of disagree. If we again, it's unusual for us to disagree. I think this is just Smith being served up for not quite an execution, but an absolute battering. If I'm honest with you, I don't see if he lasts. If he if he became the, I mean, let's be fair with it against the record that he's. We we know Bertabiev has got. Anyone that he could even go 12 rounds with the man is super impressive. But um, 
I don't see it. I've got to be honest, and I would see Callum Smith is tough. He's good. I, I, I don't disagree with, with with a lot of what you're saying that people are probably sleeping on him, but I see it as a pretty easy victory personally for Bertabiev, and with stoppage somewhere between the sixth and the ninth would be my you prediction. Said, you said the same for Wilder and Parker. I remember these words. I remember you saying, yeah, he'll, he'll just walk over him. Boxing has a, a strange habit recently of uh, of shocking us a little bit more than any just other Just because you got about a million uh, predictions <laughs> in a row wrong and then suddenly got like three right, don't suddenly think you're some uh, fucking um, uh, psychic about what's going to happen. But um, it, it, would be, it would be really disappointing uh, from the the overall point, wouldn't it as well as any n- name me a boxing fan that doesn't want to see Berta BF develop? Agreed, but also I wouldn't be that disappointed I'd, if Callum Smith, as an English fighter, goes and takes out one of the dangerous, most dangerous men on the planet in Berta Biev and impresses in his performance and sets up a fight against Bivol in that sense. You'll get disappointment because people want to see Bert B have steamroll through everything and you get that super fight. But also, does that not become a super fight if Smith has taken out the scariest man in the division and then taken on Bivol? So there are the pros and cons to it. And I agree what you're saying. And I know exactly what you mean, that this fight has been rumoured for a long period of time as Bert B and Bivol. And with everything else taken out of the equation, if you give me that on a plate now, I'd snap your hand off for it. I think it'd be an outstanding fight. But if things change in the equation leading up to that, then so be it. Yeah, and again, of course, Callum Smith being English, you know, again, it's not like I would be that disappointed in him winning. In fact, you know, in I'd be rooting for him from the perspective of wanting him to win from being an English fighter and, and liking him as a boxer. But I don't want him to ruin that super fight in the same way that we lost AJ Wilder but moving on from that, have we potentially got a better fight out of that now that it's been announced for the 8th of March that we've got this This broke just after we'd done the podcast last week and put it up, AJ Inganu on the 8th of March. I, I'm really surprised by this. It, obviously, we discussed it in detail. I called about... it and you were like, no chance. You you shot me down. We're like, nah, not happening. Don't see it. There's no way. Based entirely on the words from Eddie Hearn himself, because he'd said that AJ was fighting Hergovic next and everything was pretty much agreed and it would be for the uh, vacant IBF when Fury and Usyk had had their fight and then the IBF uh, would become vacant because of the politics of boxing, blah, blah, with their rematch and the rematch clause that's in that contract. But it's a strange one and... I'm going to go as far as to say, you'd be shocked to know, Ian, I'm sure we disagree on this. And everyone listening to this is going to be like, oh, I can't believe these two would disagree. But I think Nganu's stock and his credit have been hyped up to a significant level because Tyson Fury had approached the fight thinking, I can walk over this guy because I'm the boxer, I'm the baddest man on the planet in this division, and Nganu is a 0-1-0 novice. Now, we know better than that because we are MMA fans and we know what Nganu can do. But a real heavyweight boxer who prepares for this fight, as AJ definitely will do with Ben Davison in his corner, will dismantle Nganu. Will absolutely dismantle him. 
the sensible side that the, the my, my head doesn't disagree with you my heart has those flashbacks of i was in vegas on a stag do when we watched it of aj ruiz junior and i think the one thing that aj despite the prep and all the rest of it that he's definitely been a changed fighter since that fight to me is i think he worries about his chin and if there's one man you do not want to be worried about your chin or getting caught on it's Ngannou. Now, I think it's fair to say that um, Fury slept on Ngannou and didn't prepare properly, like we said, but I'm pretty sure we both called this, that certainly I did, that I thought Ngannou was going to put him on his ass at least once. And I definitely think that Ngannou will put AJ on his ass. Now, I'm not quite so, so sure AJ's powers of recovery, if he takes a big shot, are the same as Tyson Fury's. So I, I, it's a very, very dangerous fight for Joshua. Hart says Joshua, if he prepares properly, he plays it very defensively sound, should win. My heart says, in Ghana lands a bomb, AJ's not getting up and not making the count. You just said your heart said two different things then. Well, my head head says AJ, <laughs> my heart says in Ghana. And I, I, I would love in Ghana to win just from the, the point of view of the story, everything that's gone on, just imagine. I mean, taking on, I mean, again, let's just for a moment, a guy, a zero and zero boxer, an MMA fighter, who grew up digging sand in Cameroon, who crossed the border into Spain six times and was kicked out before he made it over to France didn't start training boxing or MMA until he was 26 in his first two pro boxing fights, takes on two of the top three or four heavyweights in the whole world. Now that is an incredible story. I mean, a film will be made about Nganu in 10 or 12, 10, 15 years time, depending on that result. Yeah. The problem will be if they do make a film, it'll be he, went into boxing and then lost his first two boxing fights because he, he doesn't beat Joshua. He absolutely categorically doesn't. And the difficulty I've got here is I like Nganu. I very much like him. And I really wanted to see him knock out Tyson Fury because I can't stand Tyson Fury. But I like AJ more and I don't want Nganu to derail the hype that AJ is slowly but surely building again with a new camp, the demeanour that he's got, is much more of the classic AJ that everyone liked to see. No one wants to see the AJ that's sort of in between Ruiz uh, Jr.'s first fight and roughly just after Usyk 2, so that sort of thing. No so that's what, I, mean, I used to love AJ, and I, I agree with you. I was always an AJ fan, you know, great build, you know, looks like an, uh, an Adonis, like the way he fights, but... Some of the ways that he, that he acted, you know, that that ridiculous was it after the second Usyk fight when he got the mic, he, lost his he head. went on just yeah. fucking a ramble and shit. Like he went down severely in my estimations after that, and particularly as I'm, I've always loved boxing, but I am ultimately I would say a bigger MMA fan. And as much as AJ's English, I can't deny it, I'm rooting for Francis on this one. I want Ngannou to spark him. And create I just, a wave. I, I think if AJ 
goes back to that mindset, which he does, like I say, he does appear to be slowly but surely. And I really like Ben Davison as a coach, and maybe that's what he's needed all along to get that confidence built up. If he does what he did against Klitschko, for example, he will get a million and one fans back very, very swiftly. If you give me that AJ, you give the world that AJ, who is going to go in and say, you know, this man who people say is the hardest MMA fighter to ever have existed, who's got the hardest punch in the world, I'm going to spark him out and I'm going to go toe-to-toe with him. That's what people want. That's what heavyweight boxing is all about. Give me that. Regardless of the outcome, give me that. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, and then there's, just on that, there's then been a couple of rumours, haven't there, nothing confirmed, both, I believe, on potentially on that same card. Again, we're in Riyadh season or whatever they call it, being in Saudi Arabia, of... Wilder against Big Bang Zhang. Yeah. And potentially uh, Hergovic versus Joseph Parker, which would be two pretty good fights as well, I'd like to see. Yeah, and Hergovic versus Parker would be a weird one because the way that the division is shaping up, I don't see that happening just yet because the IBF title is going to become vacant. There is a, a weird... And I keep saying the word weird, so I'm going to refrain from doing that. There is a strange uh, announcement that was made that AJ hadn't become ranked number two in the IBF standings. He remains number three, but the number two spot in the IBF rankings is now vacant instead, which makes very little sense. But obviously Joe Parker, with his big win against Wilder, it arguably should be up there as well. So you might, depending on what happens with Ngannou and AJ, see Hergovic versus Joe Parker for the vacant IBF, if all goes wrong for AJ in this fight. Um, and where that leaves Wilder, God knows, because this, if it does happen, the fight against Big Bag Zhang would be explosive and everyone wants to see that. And I think Zhang would win. Uh, but it's also exactly to Wilder's skill set. It's going to be a man who doesn't want to box. He wants to come out and take your head off. And you'd be like, well, I'll take your head off instead. Heavyweight boxing. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think Wilder has hit that ceiling and been a bit exposed by the Fury fights and then by Parker. And if Parker can beat him in the manner that he did, which was, as we discussed last week, pretty comprehensive... I think Big Bang Zhang can as well, because, I mean, that guy's a monster as well. And obviously, we know the only thing really going for um, Wilder is his punching power. And if there was probably one heavyweight other than Tyson that you could say might be able to take one of his bombs and get up, it's probably Zhang just because of his pure size of the guy. And, and you know, his chin and head are probably thicker than my waist, you know, he's got a monster <laughs> head on him. Like, so I, I I could see Wilder losing again. And if Wilder does, he's done. What, he's where, he's very much in there? trouble because if he loses every round against Parker, as he did, he then gets sparked out by Big Bang Zhang, which, you know, if that fight does happen, fingers crossed, because me and you love Big Bang Zhang. He's a, a very classy fighter. He, he conducts himself very nice, uh, very uh, gentlemanly. Until he gets into the ring and then takes your head off, like he did. I love his fucking nickname. Who can't love yeah, a guy Big Bang? Big Bang yeah. Yeah. You know I mean? exactly. It's like it's perfect. Um, and as you say, where does Wilder go from that? There isn't. He's basically fought anyone that's near the top of the card. 
in your Furies, uh, your, your Parker, and then potentially Big Bang Zhang, and lost every time. So I, I, I wouldn't disagree. I think he's he's very much at the end of the road of his career, and we could see him hang his gloves up. And it would be a shame never to see AJ versus Wilder, but do you really want to see it if AJ is ascending and Wilder's very, very quickly descending? No, not off the back. Not no, no one wants to see that after two losses. If he did lose, so he's lost to Parker, lost to Big Bang Zhang. There's no clamour for that fight whatsoever. So, I would say Fury's uh, sorry Wilder's time is a genuinely thought of top five heavyweight days are uh, are well and truly over. Um, but he could trust him. You know, let's say he does come out and in a couple of rounds blow the monstrous big bang Zhang away and, uh, and finish him and put him down. He definitely throws himself back into that just by that alone, probably throws himself back into the conversation of, you know, when this mix up and, you know, maybe the winner of AJ and Garnu, you know, maybe let's say you're right. And um, AJ wins and, and, and wins quite easily in, against Ngannou. I would certainly want to see Ngannou Wilder. Because yeah. you could, that's that that's an easy sell in terms of the two biggest punches ever. So that 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 would then give somewhere Wilder for go and and Ringano to go, and I think that fight sells a lot based on you can almost guarantee someone's getting knocked out. And it's a big payday for both of them because, as you said, it's Riyadh season would come back round very very swiftly at the end of the year. And it's a very easy sell of two people who are going to try and punch each other's heads off, which everyone loves in heavyweight boxing. But um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, in terms of the announcements. We'll see if anything firm happens over the next week. And of course, if it does, we'll discuss it as soon as we find out about it. And uh, I'm sure we'll end up tweeting about it regardless in the meantime. But as always, thanks very much for listening. And we'll speak to you next week. <laughs> 